I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so Friends AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. With me today is Ben Herskovich. Ben is a research fellow at the ANU. He has a broad range of experience working in and around government and academia. In our discussion today, we talk about a broad range of topics, including US-China relations, the issue of Taiwan, recent breakthroughs in the Australia-China relationship, and how AUKUS fits into the picture. I hope you enjoy. So I thought we'd begin with a discussion of US-China relations, um, particularly looking at US instability of recent. Um, How does the stability of the US internally impact its resolve in Asia? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. It's great to be with you and looking forward to this discussion. I think it's hard to get a sense of what that instability means for US policy in the world and the international system more broadly because it's just so unclear what the net result of that instability will be. It can take the United States in so many different directions and that could fundamentally shift the character of US external policy, which will have colossal flow-on effects for Australia and the world more broadly. I think at the very least, regardless of the direction in which the United States goes, there is a huge amount of worry in capitals around the globe and in particular in the Indo-Pacific as to what the settling point is and the kinds of policies that the United States embraces along the way to that settling point. And so I think at the very least, we can be confident that it creates concerns and doubts in Canberra and in Tokyo and in Taipei and in other key capitals in the region about the staying power of the United States and the willingness of the United States to play a significant security role in the region in the sense that if you ended up with an isolationist Republican candidate who wins the presidency in 2024, you could very easily imagine a scenario in which the United States pulls back significantly from the region, decides that it doesn't want to take on the fiscal burden of providing a significant military ballast in the region. And that would create potentially cascading waves of instability on the Korean peninsula in relation to Taiwan and its vulnerable position proximate to China, for Australia, which has a really deep and intimate security relationship with the United States. I think another big dimension to this from the point of view of Australians and the Australian government is that it creates a lot of uncertainty vis-a-vis huge defence procurements like AUKUS in that this is an immensely expensive multi-decade defense capability acquisition program, which depends essentially on the United States as well as the United Kingdom, but the United States is arguably the biggest factor in this. And if you have a significantly or even radically isolationist US president, you can very easily imagine in a couple of years time, AUKUS will disappear. By the stroke of the pen of the US Mm. president, we'll no longer have this program to acquire nuclear powered submarines. So I think from an Australian perspective in particular, it creates a lot of uncertainty as to our future military capabilities and the security environment in which we operate. I think another big aspect to this, which I often think about and worry about, honestly, is that there is the very real possibility of serious democratic decay in the United States. The United States is still a relatively well-functioning, thriving liberal democracy, and it projects its values around the world. And if you are committed to liberal democratic values, that is a good thing to have one of the preeminent powers 
a strong advocate for human rights and democracy and liberalism and rights and freedoms. But it's entirely possible that over the course of the next few years, there will be a further deterioration of democratic conditions in the United States. And we could see some kind of collapse of the current system of government in the United States. And a United States, which is no longer a liberal democracy, will raise huge existential questions for Australia in terms of our alliance with the United States, whether we want to be so intimately intertwined in security terms with the United States. And also it will raise big questions for our region, but the globe more broadly as to what the trajectory is for liberal democracy around the world, for human rights around the world, and what it might mean for an increasingly ascendant and assertive cohort of authoritarian regimes which are seeking to wind back liberal democratic rights and freedoms, certainly at home and potentially even in the region and around the globe. Yeah, I think um, the Freedom House Index recently, or maybe recently as in a couple of years ago, um, downgraded the what they thought to be the quality of US democracy. Um, so it's it's interesting to think about, you know, the arsenal of democracy concept from like World War II, how that would, you know, will play out in the future um, when the US might not be as democratic as we've kind of always thought it to be. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. These are really tough and inevitably speculative questions, but I think they're really important questions for Australians to think about. And it strikes me that often in the public debate, in Australia, because we are so intertwined with the United States in security terms and we are such a close ally, and because there are diplomatic sensitivities associated with raising these kinds of questions publicly, certainly if you're an Australian minister or a prime minister, but even if you are a significant figure in Australian public debate, asking big questions about the long-term survival of US democracy or the political trajectory that the United States is on can sometimes be controversial. We tend not to have as many really serious conversations as we should about the direction of travel domestically in the United States and what that might mean for liberal democracy in our region, but also the security policies that Australia has and Australia's international orientation in that depending on how that trajectory plays out for the United States and depending on where the United States ends up domestically, Australia could be increasingly pushed to make really hard decisions which take us in a radically different direction from the direction that we've gone in, which is, over the course of many years now, increasingly becoming militarily intertwined with the United States. But if the United States fundamentally changes its domestic political character, that will prompt Australia to reconsider its really tight military embrace of the United States. And I think, as Australians, we should all be, at the very least thinking about what kind of contingencies might eventuate, what are the worst case scenarios, and whether we are in a good position in our public life to deal with those kinds of extreme scenarios, even though hopefully that will never come to pass and it still seems unlikely, but it is a very real possibility that we can't afford to discount. So on, on, on that similar topic about the embrace of, uh, about Australia's embrace of the US, the late Alan Gingell spoke about this fear of abandonment that Australia has in relation to, to its Euro-American partners. Um, do you think that it's kind of AUKUS and what's just happened with the Quad has kind of made that fear worse, worse than at, at previous points? My general sense of this is that Australia, as Alan pointed out many times and wrote in his book, has historically in its modern history since the period of colonisation, been deeply enmeshed in political and security terms with the preeminent power, first the United Kingdom and then the United States. And I think that impulse to be deeply enmeshed with the preeminent power, the United States right now, becomes all the more urgent in the context of a surging growth of power in China mm. and... China's more assertive statecraft and a sense of vulnerability for Australia associated with that. And so we are in this phase right now of embracing the United States militarily and strategically and in security terms, increasingly fulsomely as a result of that sense of vulnerability vis-a-vis -vis China and threat from China. Now, we can have a big debate about whether that sense of vulnerability is accurate, whether that's an accurate appraisal of reality, 
But I think regardless of one's position on that, there's no doubt that if you read things like the recently released DSR or you look at the public messaging from Australian ministers and the Prime Minister and see the way in which these debates play out in the public arena in Australia, there is deep-seated fear of China's growing power and what that means for Australia. And that Mm -hmm. lends itself to Australia embracing even more than it has in recent decades the United States in military terms. And one of the key examples of that is AUKUS, the nuclear-powered submarines. And a big part of that also is the role of US force posture in Australia, things that have come out of recent Osmin announcements about Mm -hmm. additional rotations of US bombers through Australian airfields or additional deployments of US naval vessels to Australian ports. So we're very much in this process of deepening our embrace of the United States in response to China's growing power and fears associated with that. And I don't see strong evidence of that sense of vulnerability and the associated fears of China dissipating anytime soon. So it seems as if the trajectory that we're on in Australia is for an ever deeper embrace of the United States militarily via things like AUKUS and additional US force posture. Certainly. Um, You spoke just then about uh, economic statecraft. How would you define economic statecraft and how how do China and the US use economic statecraft in relation to each other at the current moment? So the general idea of economic statecraft is the use of economic policy levers to pursue strategic objectives. And in simple terms, what that means is that a government will make use of its trade or its investment to pursue political or diplomatic objectives with other countries. And a classic example of that is the way in which China has used economic coercion against Australia in recent years. It has been dissatisfied with the statements from Australian leaders and ministers and the positions that Australia has taken on domestic policy considerations. And as a result of that, China decided to freeze out certain Australian exports from the Chinese market. A classic case of economic statecraft. We are in a period of world history in which countries around the world are making more and more use of economic statecraft. And that's not to say that it is historically unprecedented necessarily, but on the backdrop of the post-Cold War period of high liberalism, if you like, where everyone was liberalising and the state was playing less and less of an important role in the economy after the end of the Cold War, this period of a re-embrace of economic statecraft is a pretty significant deviation from the last few decades of world history. And it's playing out in Australia with things like the government-backed acquisition of Digicel, a Pacific telecommunications company, by Telstra. This is an effort by the Australian government to use its finances to help an Australian company acquire a company in the region in a bid to keep a Chinese company out. And so a classic case of using economic policy levers to pursue a strategic objective of keeping China out of Pacific telecoms. Now, to your question about the United States and China, even though I said just a moment ago, countries around the world are increasingly embracing economic statecraft, including Australia, arguably there are no countries that have more fully embraced economic statecraft in recent years than the United States and China. We saw it in a really dramatic way in the United States with the Trump presidency, with the imposition of a huge number of tariffs against China in particular, but against other countries as well, including allies and partners. And we're seeing it now under the Biden administration with the continuation of many of those tariffs, particularly against China, but also the Biden administration's embrace of versions of industrial policy, particularly in relation to high technology, semiconductors and the like, using huge amounts of government money to spur domestic Uh, technological industries, and also using all sorts of government restrictions to try and strangle the innovation of another country, in particular China in this case. So we have sweeping US export controls on semiconductors and semiconductor manufacturing equipment and IP aimed at squeezing out Chinese tech companies. Now, the United States is not the only actor in this. The growing use of economic statecraft 
on both sides of the Pacific is driven by both sides of the Pacific. Just as the United States is fully embracing it, so too is Beijing. Beijing is pouring huge amounts of money into its own domestic industry, in particular advanced manufacturing and high technology in the semiconductor space. But it's also using all sorts of sharper forms of economic statecraft as well. Things like the trade restrictions against Australia, but that's not the only case. China has done that vis-a-vis South Korea, vis-a-vis Vietnam, the Philippines, and other countries. And then on the more positive side of the ledger, Beijing is also in the business of using its companies and its investments abroad to bring countries closer to its view on issues and to build influence around the globe. So just as there are those sharper forms of economic statecraft, which the United States and China are using against each other, both the United States and China, and in particular China, they are investing in the region, providing infrastructure in the region as a way of providing business opportunities for their companies, but also to build influence and bind countries closer to China. And a classic case of this economic statecraft, which is a bit more positive, is China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is rolling out huge amounts of infrastructure across the Indo-Pacific and more broadly. And that's aimed at providing a way of dealing with infrastructure shortfalls in the region and providing an outlet for Chinese companies and providing business opportunities for them, but also crucially developing goodwill in capitals towards China. So we are in this phase right now where both the United States and China are fully embracing the use of economic policy levers to pursue their statecraft. And it's both positive inducements, bringing countries closer to the United States and China, but it's also attacking other countries as it is in the case of Australia and China or attacking each other. And I think I'll just end on this point that we talk a lot about US-China great power competition and the risk of conflict between those two great powers. And I think that risk of conflict in a military sense, a traditional military sense, is very real and we should worry about that. We should analyze that. We should think about that. And there are many, many policymakers around the world and in Canberra in particular, thinking about how to mitigate that. And our own foreign minister, Penny Wong, regularly talks about the need for guardrails between the United States and China to minimize the chance of full-scale military conflict. But having spent time over the last few years at ANU focused on this question of economic statecraft, it strikes me that regardless of the possibility of high-end military conflict between China and the United States, we are already in intense conflict between China and the United States in the realm of economic statecraft. Both Beijing and Washington are on some level pursuing war against the other via economic means with US export controls that I mentioned earlier, but also with China's effort to punish US allies and partners like Australia and to spur its own technological growth. So we're already in the phase of not just competition, but outright hostility between the United States and China, and that's yep. playing out in the realm of economic statecraft. Yeah, of course. Um, so this economic war, uh, <laughs> this uh, this competition is certainly happening, um, but on the point of military conflict, where do you see um, where do you see military conflicts breaking out in Asia? Hopefully, nowhere. <laughs> uh, look, the prospect of high-intensity conflict in our region is something that we can't discount and it could very easily occur depending on who has political power in Beijing, Washington and other capitals and it could easily occur if there is misjudgment by one or more parties involved. But I still assess the likelihood as being relatively low notwithstanding all of the increased tension between the United States and China. And part of the reason for that is that I think there is perhaps an unexpected upshot associated with the fact that the United States and China are engaged in such intense competition and conflict in the realm of economic statecraft and in the diplomatic realm. And I think the reason I say that is that they each have a really adversarial relationship with the other. And when they can use economic tools and diplomatic tools and political tools to punish each other and to attack each other, that provides some level of outlet. And maybe that means that we are less likely to see 
hot war in the region because there are all of these other means by which they can pursue their hard-edged assertive objectives that doesn't have to involve high-end military platforms clashing. Having said that, if we were looking around the region and thinking about which conflicts could spiral into disastrous scenarios for the United States and China, but for the world more broadly, I think chief among them, you would be looking at the Taiwan Strait. That's because Beijing very clearly has unyielding determination to achieve its objectives in Taiwan. Unification between China and Taiwan, the end of Taiwan's de facto independence and the evisceration of Taiwan's liberal democracy. And the United States is increasingly committed to Taiwan. There isn't a formal alliance commitment between the United States and Taiwan, but the political mood in Washington is such that the notion of allowing China to achieve its objective in Taiwan is just unthinkable. I think policymakers and lawmakers in D.C. see Taiwan as a massive test of U.S. resolve and U.S. strength. And moreover, there are many lawmakers and presidential candidates who will happily use Taiwan as a means of pushing their political points and thumbing their noses at the Chinese Communist Party. So that is one of those cases where there is the real potential of hot war and conflict because of the level of determination on both sides of the Pacific, both in Beijing and Washington. Other flashpoints which could easily spiral out of control include the East China Sea, the South China Sea in particular, where you have this really heavy presence of Chinese vessels in the Navy, but also the China Coast Guard, and then also the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia, and you have a lot of naval presence from the United States and US allies and partners and other claimant states in the South China Sea. There's perpetually the possibility of an expansion of conflict on the India-China border. There are far too many candidates for possible hot war in the Indo-Pacific. But one thing that I think should be at least somewhat comforting is that in relation to China-Taiwan, which I think remains the most likely military flashpoint in the years ahead, neither Washington nor Beijing, and certainly not Taipei either, wants war. China wants to achieve its objectives vis-a-vis Taiwan in all likelihood without having to take on the massive risks associated with launching a full-scale amphibious invasion across the Taiwan Strait. It wants to use measures short of war to isolate Taiwan and intimidate Taiwan and intimidate the rest of the world from engaging with Taiwan. It doesn't actually want war. It seems that, yeah, in that sense, the status quo is actually quite beneficial. It seems underreported that most countries seem to prefer the status quo as it is. I think that's right. I think all parties would prefer a version of the status quo. Certainly the people of Taiwan would prefer the status quo. I think the challenge for both Beijing and Washington and for the world at large, is that the status quo isn't a fixed thing. It's constantly changing. It's constantly changing in part because society and politics in Taiwan are changing and Taiwanese people are increasingly seeing themselves as Taiwanese as opposed to Chinese and they're increasingly supportive of the indefinite continuation of Taiwan's de facto independence. But it's also changing in relation to what China is doing. China is ramping up pressure on Taiwan via more and more People's Liberation Army Air Force flights across the strait or around Taiwan. And Beijing is ramping up the diplomatic pressure on Taiwan and trying to encourage countries to cut formal diplomatic ties with Taiwan. And then, of course, things are changing in the United States where there is this growing politicization of Taiwan for political gain by a range of actors in Washington. Taiwan is kind of this totemic issue if you are more hawkish on China in Washington and you will potentially do provocative things for the sake of signaling your strength on Taiwan for a domestic US audience in part. 
it's not entirely cynical, but sometimes it is at least partially cynical. And so I think you're right that everyone wants a continuation of the status quo, but the question becomes which version of the status quo? And I think all sides see the status quo in some ways shifting against their interests. Yeah, slightly suboptimal in some sense. Yeah, that's right. And then that encourages them to further change their approach, which creates this classic, it's not necessarily a security dilemma per se in that it has lots of different dimensions, but it's kind of a a security, diplomatic, political, economic dilemma where all sides are pushing in their own direction and that encourages the other sides to push in their own direction and that increasingly brings all sides into conflict with each other. So I think that's a case of intensifying tension between all the parties involved. Will it lead to conflict? I still don't think so. And I think there is a great deal that countries like Australia can do to try and preserve that status quo, which benefits everyone. But there is the real risk that things will spiral out of control and there'll be increasingly dramatic actions taken by one or all sides to pursue their objectives, which will just further escalate things. Yeah. Um, On this sort of topic of of Taiwan, um, do you think that the buck stops with Taiwan? Um, to say that you know, imagine that Taiwan were to be were to fall, so to speak. Um, do you think that what, what do you think happens after that if that does happen? Yeah, this is a fascinating question, and inevitably we're in the highly speculative realm here. Yeah. So this is just my considered views of what might happen without having access to a crystal ball. If China achieves its objectives of absorbing Taiwan, it is fair to imagine that it will have pretty dramatic ramifications for regional security. It would, in all likelihood, lead to a pretty significant set of doubts in the minds of policymakers and political leaders in Seoul, Tokyo, Canberra, Manila, Bangkok and elsewhere about the United States as a partner and an ally, about the reliability of US power in the region, it would lead to potentially more assertive actions being taken by North Korea towards South Korea in light of those doubts. Maybe, and it's hard to predict, but you can imagine it leading to a serious conversation at the high level in Seoul and Tokyo about the need to acquire nuclear weapons of their own because of the unreliability of US security guarantors. So it's very possible that we'd end up in a situation of cascading instability as a result of very, very serious doubts being asked about the United States if China is able to achieve its objectives in Taiwan with the United States either pulling back after a short struggle with China or just giving up in advance. Having said that, in terms of that question of what it means for China's statecraft, I think that is a different question. If China takes Taiwan and that leads to big doubts about the United States, that would be destabilizing and dangerous for the region. But I don't think that necessarily means that China's ambitions balloon indefinitely. Now, again, it's a speculative We don't know. It's entirely possible that if China takes Taiwan, China will then start having a serious conversation about whether it needs to take islands that are currently controlled by Japan around Okinawa, which historically arguably paid tribute to the court in Beijing. Some academics and commentators in China have previously raised that prospect. Will we end up with that kind of scenario where China says, okay, we have Taiwan now. Now we're going to take back all these other territories that we previously had some affiliation with that are now part of other sovereign states. Possible. Could it happen in the Far East with Russia? Maybe. I wouldn't rule that out. We have to think about that as a possibility, that it could lead to expansive territorial claims. My best guess, though, would be that it wouldn't. That China would take Taiwan and its claims over territory and maritime zones in the East China Sea and the South China Sea would remain and China would continue to prosecute those fulsomely and its claims over territory on the border with India would remain and China would continue to prosecute those claims. But I don't think it would lead to ballooning, ever-expanding territorial and maritime claims 
for China. But again, I hasten to add that this is all very speculative and of course. so much of this is subject to political shocks at home. It depends on the character and ideology of future Chinese leaders. But I think based on the track record of China's statecraft, I wouldn't expect it to be a case of first Taiwan, then the Philippines, yeah. then Thursday Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Taiwan is a very special case for China. Yep. And it relates to the history of China. It's a symbolic sort of thing. It's not. Yeah, it is yeah. a real territorial objective for China, but you're absolutely right. It is also something that is rich in historical and political and ideological significance for the Chinese Communist Party in particular. This is not necessarily a general question of China's statecraft. It's a specific question of the Chinese Communist Party and the history of the Chinese Civil War. Now, I'm not a historian and don't claim to be an expert on these matters, but the people who are point to just how fraught that internal domestic political and ideological struggle was in China and the current government in Taiwan as an entity which exists because of the history of the nationalist government fleeing from mainland China and ending up in Taiwan means that from the point of view of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, and I don't endorse this view, but their view is that the existence of a de facto independent Taiwan today is a product of their war with the nationalists and they need to complete their historical mission of unifying China and defeating their adversaries and bring Taiwan into China. And so it is something which has really, really intense importance for the Chinese Communist Party in particular, which means that Taiwan is probably sui generis. It's not something that is going to be replicated elsewhere. Beijing is particularly fixated on Taiwan because of all of that history. And if Beijing achieves its objectives in Taiwan, that doesn't mean that it's going to have similar objectives elsewhere in the Western Pacific. Yeah, that's good. Um, that's obviously the future. And I think it's good to converse what might happen um, just for our delegates to be aware of you know things that are debates and conversations that are being had throughout the region. Um, but as you see it today, how are both the US and China um, preparing? Um, obviously, the PLA has been undergoing modernization, um, but also how is the US maneuvering throughout the region? You, you spoke earlier about the, the aspect of AUKUS about increased rotations throughout Australia. Like, what, what are both sides doing in order to in essence, prepare for any outcome. Mm. So from Beijing's perspective, the objectives that it has in terms of military modernization and statecraft more broadly are aimed at executing China's overarching national objectives, and in particular, the overarching national objectives of the Chinese Communist Party, which is to build its military into a world-class military by mid-century, which will be the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. It seeks in all likelihood to be a peer competitor to the United States in military terms, not just on its immediate seaboard, but also more broadly in the Indo-Pacific. It seeks to be able to project military power around the world, and that's why China is in the midst of building a fleet of aircraft carriers that will be able to project naval power across the Pacific Ocean, throughout the Indian Ocean, and even beyond. And partly that is about building China's international influence and international prestige, but it's also partly about simple material considerations in that China is the greatest trading nation. It is acutely dependent on sea lines of communication across the Pacific Ocean and across the Indian Ocean and more broadly around the globe. And it is historically, if you look at the history of the United Kingdom or the United States, unsurprising that a very significant trading nation will also want a very significant navy. And you want your commercial sea power to be backed up by naval sea power, which is what China is doing with its naval modernization and with its attempt to acquire military access and basing points around the Indo-Pacific. And China wants also to be able to prevail against the United States in contingencies in its immediate region, in the Taiwan Strait in particular. That is a huge focus for 
PLA modernization. He wants to be able to defeat an adversary and end a conflict on its terms in the Taiwan Strait. Now, that doesn't mean that China intends to use its military for that purpose. It is building a capability to deal with those kinds of scenarios should they occur. It doesn't want to kick off a conflict. It just wants to win a conflict if a conflict begins. In terms of how things are playing out in Washington and U.S. statecraft more broadly, I think we're in the midst of seeing a pretty significant shift from an emphasis on U.S. primacy, U.S. overmatch against any peer competitor around the globe and in the Indo-Pacific in particular, to a more allies and partners-centric approach to counterbalancing China's military power. So at the very end of the Trump presidency, we had declassified documents that were previously secret, no foreign release, talking about U.S. objectives in the Indo-Pacific. And in those documents, the objective was still primacy. I suspect in a few years' time or a few decades' time, if we see declassified Biden-era documents, it'll really be about building the U.S. military, building U.S. capabilities, but being able to provide a viable counterbalance to China's power in concert with allies and partners like Australia and Japan and South Korea and others. And I think it's in that context that we can see the shift towards the provision of nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. This is something that Australia asked for reportedly and wants now, but it's also something that the United States wants on some level. Not necessarily the provision of that particular propulsion mechanism, but the growth of the sophistication and potency of the military capabilities of US allies and partners. Because I think there probably is a recognition in Washington maybe it's not publicly stated necessarily yet at least, that the United States can't go it alone. And this was a point that Foreign Minister Penny Wong made in her recent speech to the National Press Club, that the United States remains the indispensable power, but it can't do everything we need it to do in mm. relation to China. And so the United States is deepening its political and diplomatic connections with allies and partners, but it's also wanting to create a broader coalition that will be able to provide a military counterbalance to China. And I think in that sense, the overarching objective here is military deterrence. The United States, in partnership with its allies in particular, but also its partners more broadly, wants to create enough doubt in the minds of policymakers and political leaders in Beijing about the potentially catastrophic consequences for them... <laughs> if they take aggressive military actions and therefore preserve some kind of uneasy peace via the credible demonstration of military strength in the Western Pacific, including via things like nuclear-powered orca submarines in the decades ahead. Yeah, right. Um, so we spoke about just then about um, the US taking a, a bit of a backseat and focusing more on allies and partners. Um, might segue into more specifically a discussion about Australia-China relations. Mm. So, when asked to describe Australia's China policy by former German Chancellor um, Angela Merkel, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott cynically replied that Australia's China policy is driven by fear and greed. What do you make of that assessment? <laughs> it is very succinct. Yeah. <laughs> it's not entirely inaccurate, I would say. And I think if you think about the overarching motivations that Australia exhibits vis-a-vis -vis China, Tony Abbott's account is still broadly accurate, I would say. I wouldn't necessarily use that particular turn of yeah. phrase. I think it's too extreme and a bit provocative, but it captures the essence of it, I think, which is that on the one hand, successive Australian governments have fully understood that China is an immense economic opportunity for Australia. China's demand for Australia's commodities arguably provided essential economic ballast for Australia during the global financial crisis. It has been a huge boon for Australian companies, for governments with corporate tax receipts and for the Australian public more broadly for jobs and growth. And that remains the case. And regardless of what is changing domestically in China in terms of growing authoritarianism and 
human rights abuses, etc., China still remains critical economic opportunity for Australia. Australia's largest trading partner by a huge margin and the growth trajectory that China is on, even though the growth outlook is moderating, still means that it will be a huge economic opportunity. So I think all Australian governments in recent years and for the decades ahead will see China as a massive opportunity and so we'll still be motivated by that greed dimension of the relationship. But at the same time, and in particular in recent years, the level of fear is intensifying and there are serious doubts about what kind of actor China will be on the world stage in the years ahead as its power grows and the possible threats that that might pose to Australia. And then coupled with that is the recent experience of China's economic coercion and increasingly assertive statecraft from Beijing in a host of different arenas, whether it's in terms of really pointy Warrior diplomacy, or whether it's in terms of dangerous maneuvers by PLA aircraft in the South China Sea, there is a palpable sense that China's statecraft is becoming more assertive, and that again raises the fears of what the world looks like when China has much more power and what that might mean for Australia. Now, I should say, I think those two poles capture the extremes yep. of opportunity and risk for Australia with China. But of course, and this doesn't get much play in the public debate about China policy and China in general, which is unfortunate. But I think it is important to point out that quite aside from those polls, there is a really big human dimension to this. And I think it's important for all Australians and especially for policymakers to realise that the relationship with China, though it is in many ways about opportunities and risks. It's also about family connections and cultural connections and historical connections. And Australia is home to in excess of, I think, 1.2 million people of Chinese heritage. So we have an incredibly diverse multicultural society in which people of Chinese backgrounds are a huge part. And they have been since the earliest years of the history of post-colonial modern Australia and they're increasingly a huge part of modern Australian society and that means that there are huge numbers of familial and personal connections with China. And one thing that I worry about is that in the debate about China policy and the Australia-China relationship and China in general, we often dehumanise China to a certain extent and think about China in terms of the People's Liberation Army or the Chinese Communist Party or economic opportunities or jobs and growth or foreign interference. But of course, China is a country of 1.4 billion people. It has a history which is intertwined with Australia's own history in terms of people-to-people connections and the arrival of people from China throughout the different periods of Australian history and the huge contributions that Australians of Chinese backgrounds have contributed to all different aspects of Australia's history. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that regardless of how fraught the relationship might become and regardless of how many threats the Chinese Communist Party might pose to various different aspects of Australian security, there are real flesh and blood human beings in China with whom we are connected deeply via a whole host of non-governmental, non-military connections and that's important and we shouldn't lose sight of the human dimension of the relationship, which is big, enduring, and will only get bigger in the years ahead. I think the securitization of China studies is something that a recent report highlighted as being very detrimental to our society. Um, but moving on from that, like, how do you think the tone of the current government differs from that previous governments that would sort of echo that assessment? Um, recently, there's been high-level visits. Um, I think Minister Farrell in recent maybe in the past week, a lot of analysis has been devoted into describing Australia-China relations as in a thaw. Um, like what, for those that aren't aware, what, what does that even mean? Um, and where are we at and where are we in the way to? Yeah, excellent questions. And this is a topic very, very close to my heart in that my day job involves writing about the Australia-China relationship and providing commentary and analysis on it. If we zoom out a little bit and start from the beginning, so to speak, (laughs) in the intense 
days of the start of the COVID-19 pandemic globally, we had a huge amount of tension in the Australia-China relationship that was prompted in part by a call by the Australian Foreign Minister at the time, Maurice Payne, for an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. And that elicited a really stinging response from the Chinese ambassador. And that was arguably the spark that set off the fire which burnt down the Australia-China relationship during the COVID years, to use a bit of a tortured metaphor. But I think it's worthwhile going back to that point just because in those years of 2020, 21, and into roughly the middle half of 2022, there was a real collapse in the Australia-China relationship. There was a total end of high-level political contact, no ministerial contact, no contact at the level of the leaders. And there was also the imposition from China of a range of trade restrictions against Australian exports. So we entered this deep freeze period in the Australia-China relationship. Now, I talked about that call from then Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. That was the spark. But of course, the Australia-China relationship had been weighed down by a series of disputes over the course of many years starting in particular in roughly the 2016-2017 period when there was growing concern in Australia about foreign interference from the Chinese Communist Party and there were some prominent cases. The banning of Huawei being one of those cases, would you, would you say? Well, that was another really significant development. Yeah, I, I think we probably want to disaggregate a little bit the foreign interference issue from the Huawei issue, but they're definitely chronologically connected yeah. and similar kinds of concerns from the point of view of the, China, of the Australian government of foreign interference from the Chinese Communist Party or the possibility of espionage from China. And so we had this movement from roughly 2017 onwards of a tougher security posture adopted by Australia vis-a-vis things like telecommunications with the Huawei and ZTE exclusions or vis-a-vis foreign interference with the introduction of new regimes that would encourage transparency and require registration and the like. And that dissatisfied China deeply. And then there was also this movement of more scrutiny of investments from China over these years. And so all that backstory combined with the spark of the COVID call at the height of COVID led to this collapse in the relationship at the political level and on the trade front. And then since the election of the Albanese government in May 2022, we've had this kind of uneasy reconnection between Beijing and Canberra at the political level with this series of ministerial engagements in various different portfolios in the defense portfolio, foreign affairs portfolio, trade portfolio, and then a leader level meeting between Xi Jinping and Anthony Albanese in November of last year. And that political engagement continues. We've had, as you point out, the recent trip from trade minister Farrell up to Beijing, and we're expecting a whole host of additional visits in the near future. The Chinese commerce minister coming to Australia, the Australian prime minister going to Beijing, the, Australia, the Chinese foreign minister coming to Australia as well, probably in July this year. So the political relationship is being resuscitated. And with that, there's all this news now of various different Chinese government trade restrictions being lifted on Australian exports. So it looks like, and who knows where we'll actually end up, but it looks like sometime in the second half of this year, we'll have most of those trade restrictions lifted. Probably the anti-dumping and countervailing duties on barley and wine will have disappeared by the second half of this year. We've also got reports already of things like Australian copper oils and concentrates, Australian coal and Australian timber announced uh, just very recently getting back into China. So we're getting back to this point where not only is the political relationship normalised with regular ministerial and leader level contact, but the trade relationship is being normalised with trade from Australia getting back into China uninterrupted. Having said all of that, and I think this is a really important caveat to keep in mind, it's entirely possible that a lot of this is a tactical manoeuvre on China's part, that China is turning on political and diplomatic taps and turning on trade taps in a bid to get the Australian government to either take a softer stance on various different issues that China judges important, whether it be human rights abuses in Xinjiang or Taiwan or trying to induce the Australian government to do something that the Chinese government wants the Australian government to do. And a classic case of that would be 
China's membership of the CPTPP Regional Trade Pact. China wants in. Australia hasn't committed either way. Taiwan wants in as well. It's going to be a big diplomatic and trade fight over the course of the next year at least. And Beijing doesn't, as most countries don't, do things from the good of its heart for another country. It is seeking its own interests via this normalization of political and diplomatic and trade contact with Australia. And so it's reasonable to assume that there will be asks from Beijing. And in fact, we've already had reporting of China's commerce minister when he had his recent meeting with Trade Minister Farrell, pushing Minister Farrell on these issues like CPTPP and also on issues like the environment for Chinese businesses in Australia. China wants Australia to be much less securitized when thinking about foreign investment, particularly from China. So, pardon me, (coughs) the relationship is going in the right direction in terms of normalizing the politics and normalizing the trade connections, but Beijing will still be pushing Canberra hard. And a warning that I often give to people, particularly when I'm talking to journalists, is that this all looks very positive and it looks like the coercion is coming to an end, but Beijing can very easily decide to throw the hammer back down on Australian exports. China hasn't decided to end its coercive approach to trade or statecraft more broadly, It's deciding to take its foot off the accelerator right now vis-a-vis Australia. But there is nothing to say that China won't, in six months' time, if Australia does something that China doesn't like, say, once again, you're in the freezer and once again, you're going to be punished in trade terms. Mm. And I think the big question will be how the Albanese government handles that delicate balance between wanting to get things back on track but also not wanting to compromise and... China will want the Albanese government to compromise on serious policy questions. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. Um, I want to talk about August now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what has been made since the announcement about the cost? Uh, so I don't want to discuss that here um, <laughs> because I think that for our delegates, they can find that pretty much everywhere else. Um, but some other points about whether or not submarines, and I just want to acknowledge that AUKUS isn't just about submarines, but for the purpose of this conversation, we'll talk about the subs. <laughs> um, but there's debate about whether or not it's going to make the region any safer. And there's also questions about whether or not our decision presupposes a later decision for us to join the US in any sort of conflict. Um, what what do you see as the, the case for AUKUS, the military rationale? Uh, so I think the military rationale for AUKUS is relatively strong. Australia's geography is such that we are acutely dependent on sea lines of communication and on the ocean. And we are also living at distance from key sea lines of communication. And we also inhabit a very large continent with very long transit times from different parts of our continent. And that means that there is a case for a capability that has the ability to travel long distance and to stay on station for a long period of time. And nuclear-powered orca submarines can do that par excellence. And diesel-electric submarines are much less capable at transiting the kinds of distances that Australia has to deal with. I think the one big potentially heroic assumption that is required for thinking that AUKUS is the right capability for Australia is that Australia should be contributing to its security far afield from Australia. So if you think that Australia's security starts and ends potentially a few hundred nautical miles off the coast of Australia, then nuclear-powered AUKUS submarines are not the right capability (laughs) for Australia. But if you think that Australia's security ends potentially many, many, many hundreds of nautical miles from Australia, maybe in the South China Sea, maybe in the Taiwan Strait, maybe in the East China Sea, then AUKUS is undoubtedly the right capability for Australia because in the absence of that nuclear-powered submarine, you're not going to be able to make as significant a contribution to potential security contingencies in those far-flung places. Now, that heroic assumption that I just mentioned that can be debated. And I personally don't necessarily think that it's a knockout blow in favor of AUKUS, 
but it makes it at the very least a plausible capability for Australia. And I think it depends on that broader view of security in the Indo-Pacific. And if you're of the view that Australia should be concerned about security in the Indo-Pacific more broadly, that Australia's security extends far beyond the Australian coast. And if you look at the military spending trend lines, the military capability trend lines, and if you look at what the People's Liberation Army is building in China, then you would say that for Australia to contribute in a substantial way to counterbalancing China's military power, you want to have nuclear-powered orca submarines. But it really will depend on that overarching macro question of the nature of Australia's security and whether Australia should be contributing to a military counterbalance to China's military power. Now, of course, the Australian Prime Minister and Australian ministers won't, in such blunt terms, publicly prosecute that argument. But I think that is the key question that so much of this hinges on, whether Australia should be in the business of counterbalancing China's growing military might, and in particular its growing naval might, with submarines that can be in the Taiwan Strait and in the East China Sea for an extended period of time. Do you think, just quickly, on the point about whether or not the subs being a good option if Australia's defence is conceived in broader terms, do you think the way that it's been framed, it, it makes the subs almost an offensive measure, measure? Earlier you mentioned the security dilemma, and part of the security dilemma is states can states can avoid the security dilemma by you know acquiring defensive weapons right do you think that do you think that the fact that we've acquired them kind of signals that they're not defensive yeah look this is a really really interesting question and i think on some level the problem here is that the distinction between offensive and defensive capabilities is often pretty muddy mm. so one can think of particular extreme examples which might obviously fit into the offensive or the defensive category. If you are digging trenches north of Brisbane to protect the southeastern corner of Australia, that's pretty clearly a defensive measure. No one's going to argue with that. Beijing isn't going to be worried. (laughs) But with most significant modern military platforms, they can be for both. They can have a whole host of different purposes. So say, for example, landing helicopter docks, those huge vessels the Australian Navy has, they, to date, have primarily been used for diplomatic purposes, for signaling purposes, to go on regional presence deployments around the Indo-Pacific. And maybe most importantly, they've been used for humanitarian purposes. They have hospitals on board. They can go to South Pacific countries that have been hit by cyclones and they can provide assistance and they can deliver medicine and they can deliver food and they can deliver... Uh, Australian soldiers that can then go on the ground and assist. But those LHDs can also be amphibious assault vessels Mm. and they could also land Australian troops and Australian capabilities on the eastern coast of Taiwan in the case of China invading (laughs) Taiwan from the Mm. west. And so I think that just highlights that all these kinds of capabilities, the distinction can be made between the offensive and the defensive, but I think it's pretty ambiguous at best, often, not always, but often. And if you're looking at nuclear-powered orca submarines in particular and what Australia might be doing with them, you can absolutely imagine a scenario where Australian defence planners and policy planners say, China has ballistic missile submarines that will be nuclear-armed that are going out of Hainan Island which have intercontinental ballistic missiles that could destroy US cities or Australian cities. And for Australia's defensive purposes and for the defensive purposes of the United States, it is absolutely critical to have assets in the South China Sea and surrounds that can track those ballistic missile submarines from the PLA Navy to provide us with security. And a capability like nuclear-powered orca submarines would be really well suited to that. (laughs) And in fact, if you want to be in the business of tracking ballistic missile submarines coming out of Hainan, a diesel-electric submarine is not going to do what you want to do. It'll be much less effective, much less discreet, and not be able to do the kind of tracking that you need to be doing, given that you're tracking a nuclear-powered submarine. So in that sense, you can say, well, there's a really strong defensive argument for this capability, that it's about 
providing us with a means of neutralizing potentially China's second strike nuclear capability, or at least knowing its whereabouts. Now, <laughs> the problem there is that, of course, from the point of view of Canberra or Washington, that might be defensive, and maybe it's sincerely defensive. But if you're looking at it from Beijing's perspective, that's going to look like a pretty forward-leaning, pretty aggressive, pretty offensive capability that is aiming to track and kill Chinese submarines exiting a submarine base proximate to the Chinese mainland. And so I think we end up in this place where it's just so very contestable mm -hmm. and the perspective from Beijing and Canberra or Beijing and Washington will be so vastly different on these things. And I think it comes down to a bigger high-level judgment as to what you think the overarching objective of U.S. statecraft should be vis-a-vis -vis China in a military sense and what Australia's contribution to that should be, whether we should be in the business of providing a serious deterrent effect in Northeast Asia and related regions and whether we should be in the business of providing a serious military counterbalance to China. Now, you can argue there's a really good reason for that on broadly defensive grounds, that if we don't do that, there's a risk of military conflict, of military adventurism from China. There's a risk of China doing ill to us and our allies and partners in the world. But you could very easily mount a very plausible and potentially quite persuasive counter-argument that says, because of the security dilemma, this kind of military capability will make China feel much less secure. It will make China further build up its military. If China thinks that its second strike nuclear capabilities coming out of Hainan Island are under threat, that will do terrifying things to policymakers and defense planners in Beijing. And so we end up in this really dangerous escalatory cycle. I'll just finish on this point. I was really struck in the wake of the fanfare associated with the full AUKUS announcement earlier this year that there was at least one Australian junior minister who explicitly talked about an arms race in the region. I didn't see the Australian defence minister or the foreign minister doing this, but a junior minister in the defence portfolio started doing this. And to me, that speaks to the level of fear for policymakers in Canberra and Washington, and it speaks to the kind of security dilemma that we find ourselves in. It's, it's an academic device on some level, but it's also a very real mm. reality that right now we find ourselves in a situation where China is massively ramping up its military capabilities. Those military capabilities might be for defensive purposes. Maybe it's to protect China's sea lines of communication. Maybe it's to protect the Chinese mainland from potential US attack, but they also could be offensive. And we don't know what China will do with those military capabilities, certainly not towards Taiwan, but also potentially not towards the Philippines or the United States or Australia. And in response to that, Australia and the United States and other allies and partners are in the business of massively ramping up their military capabilities with the intention of being able to touch China close to home or at home. And the AUKUS response is understandable. There's a strong military strategic rationale for it, but we can't assure ourselves that it won't further contribute to the arms race that we're observing. So we're responding to an arms race, but we're also potentially contributing to that arms race. And it is one of those great tragedies of statecraft that many countries respond to other countries in ways which are totally understandable and for good reason, and yet the collective net effect is disastrous for everyone involved. And I am not a strong critic of AUKUS, but it's entirely possible that AUKUS will be part of that disastrous net effect for all of us. I feel like I could talk about all these topics for hours, um, so I thank you for your time, but I think we'll have to maybe finish up now. Um, but before we do, um, could I please have your recommendations of what you have been listening to, reading and watching for our delegates? Yeah, excellent. So mine is slightly unconventional in terms of the format of it. The reading isn't really a reading, but it's kind of a reading. So we'll just go with that. I'll take the listening first. The listening that I would strongly recommend everyone get onto is a podcast by The Economist called The Prince, which is about Xi Jinping, his life story, his ideological background, what he thinks of the world, where he's come up, and what his plans for China and the world are. It's fascinating, beautifully done, amazingly well produced, and distills a huge amount of knowledge and expertise in a really digestible format. 
In terms of watching, this is also kind of a listening. So there's a not too uh, long ago released film called Triple R. It's an Indian film. It's an epic about Indian nationalism and the history of the political struggle there and the history of colonialism there. It's massively flamboyant in terms of the visuals and it's not necessarily, I don't think, a fully accurate account of what life was like at those times, but it is sumptuous visually, incredibly entertaining, and it's a true epic. And it also has a soundtrack and the Triple R soundtrack is just sublime, absolutely incredible. Songs on that soundtrack, you listen to them and you cannot be in a bad mood and they G you up really well if you're going into an exam or an interview as well. The energy is just fantastic. And the final thing, in terms of reading, this is kind of a a quasi-reading and it's a bit kind of existentialist. I would recommend everyone go on to Google, type in pale blue dot and go to the Wikipedia page. This is a photograph taken by one of the Voyager probes as it was heading out of the solar system and it cast its camera back towards the center of the solar system and took a photograph or a series of photographs. And one of those photographs includes the earth. And there's a bit of a spiel on the Wikipedia page about pale blue dot. And the earth is represented as basically one little blue pixel. And I often go back and have a browse of this page just because in the business that I'm in focused on defense and foreign policy and national security, it's all very doom and gloom. And it's mostly focused on the way in which human beings can't get along and how human beings fight each other. And the power of pale blue dot for me is that I read about that photograph and I see that photograph and I realize that all of our human struggles and all of our hostility towards other countries and towards other peoples, they're totally insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe, that we all exist on this tiny little speck in this vast expanse of the solar system, let alone the galaxy, let alone the universe. And it's a really humbling, powerful thing and it sounds very naive, but I wish more world leaders and more political figures and more hardline advocates would go online and have a look at Pale Blue Dot and realise how fragile and small our entire world is. Yeah, thank you. Um, For the listeners, I will put those in the show notes so you can scroll down and have a look at them for yourself. But thank you so much, Ben. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much. Really great conversation. Great to be with you. Best of luck.